0: Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us. We pray that as we now turn our attention to the reading and preaching of your Word, that you will use this means of grace to strengthen us, to establish us, to conform us more and more to the very image of your risen Son. We pray that as he speaks to us through your Word, that you will reveal to us a sin that remains in us and grant to us the grace of repentance or grant to us an increase of our faith to believe more and more closely and strongly the precious and very great promises of our Lord. Encourage our hearts as we give our attention now to Psalm 69. Give us the illumination that we need from your Spirit. We we confess we are unable to understand this as we ought to understand it unless you work in us to reveal what your Word has taught us. We pray that he will strengthen and establish us for Christ's sake and for our good. Amen. You take your seat, please, and turn uh, once again to Psalm number 69. We looked at the first half of this last week. As we've been walking through this sort of short mini-series on imprecatory psalms, psalms that frankly don't get a lot of attention, Uh, We've talked about some of those reasons why they can be somewhat awkward for us, even as we're reading in in, in our family worship or reading in our our own private devotions, and we come to this this language that that says things like, may their teeth be dashed against, the knock their teeth out, or may their infants be dashed against the rocks. Or in this case, in Psalm 69, may their house be made desolate. And we think, aren't we supposed to pray for our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? How do we reconcile these things? So we looked last week at the first half of Psalm 69, and and David is is pouring out his heart to God, expressing a depth of suffering, an almost despair, and he compares it to rising water coming up to his neck, and his feet are mired in clay, and he can't even get a good foothold. He's slipping and sliding, and well, you can imagine what what that would be like. It's a poetic expression to describe the kind of suffering he's enduring. We don't know the particular circumstances in which David writes this. There are a number of occasions we could look at in David's life and say, "Well, this fits." But we don't know the particular circumstances, but we do know that David says he's suffering without cause." So there are times in David's life we know, for example, in Psalm 51, "He is suffering under the weight of his own sin, as we sing, in, in thy wrath and hot, good, hot displeasure." That's, a, that's a, a psalm that we sing is based on Psalm 38. Again, David is repenting before the Lord. That's not the case here in Psalm 69. But there are a number of reasons, a number of of ways in which the people of God might suffer in this age. Sometimes we suffer because of of outside external things that happen to us. Maybe it's a bodily injury. Maybe it's sickness has come to us. Maybe it's internal. Maybe it's our own sin that we've, we've been caught up in our own, the web of sin, God has brought to us the grace of repentance and we're grieving over that. Lord, I've been a Christian for this long and I'm still dealing with this? Other times, think about the Apostle Paul as he walked the streets of Athens and it said the, his heart was grieved within him when he observed the idolatry. Sometimes we grieve and we sorrow internally because we see the degrading of our culture. We see the sin all around us and it breaks our heart. And there are all kinds of different ways that we can suffer to varying degrees, and it just sometimes can come upon us like a tidal wave. And the main thrust of last week's sermon was to demonstrate how we ought to read and and indeed pray Psalm 69 as a guide to us. And and there we saw three different voices. First is the voice of David. That's the original, in in human terms, the author, the Holy Spirit-inspired David. As David wrote this, and he called out to God. So we read and pray the psalm through the voice of David. But we also read it and pray it through the voice of Christ himself, our Messiah. Six different times this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. And many times those very words are given into the mouth of Christ. He is the one who prays this. But also we saw that third voice is the church in every age, in every place, may and ought to pray Psalm 69 as as a guide for us. When we are dealing with persecution, sorrow, difficulty, we may pray, we ought to pray Psalm 69 as an inspired, infallible guide to us to help us in our praying. So that's where we come this week, and I'll read the psalm in a moment, but that's where we come this week. The main thrust today is how do we pray? As we look at Psalm 69, for what things ought we to pray when sorrow comes upon us, when suffering comes upon us. Again, whether that's external or internal. How do we pray? Let's read together Psalm 69. Here now, the Word of God. I'm reading now from the Legacy Standard Bible. It's sort of a revised version of, or an updated version of the New American Standard. Save me, O God. For the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep clay and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my calling out. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful. Being wrongfully my enemies, what I did not steal, I then have to restore O God, it is you who knows my folly and all my guilt is not hidden from you. May those who hope for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord Yahweh of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and a foreigner to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who dwell at the gate moan about me, and I am the drunkard's songs. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Yahweh. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your loving kindness, answer me with the truth of your salvation." Deliver me from the mire, and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from the foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Yahweh, for your loving kindness is good. According to the abundance of your compassion, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your slave, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me from my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I hoped for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink." May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes darken so that they cannot see and make their loins quake continually. Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents, for they have persecuted him whom you yourself have struck down. And they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may... They not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not record, be recorded with the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me security, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving, and this will please Yahweh better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The humble see it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For Yahweh hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The seed of his slaves will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let us notice in the first place what David how David prays. How how Psalm 69 may indeed shape our prayers. I'm going to start with verse 16. We're going to work our way through the second half of the psalm. David having I mean kind of reassured himself that the Lord will deliver him. He says, "Answer me, O Yahweh, for your loving-kindness is good." According to the abundance of your compassion, turn to me. David prays based on the character of God. David prays based on the character of God. I not know about, about you, but when, when suffering comes, when hardship comes, when pain comes, sometimes the least likely thing we are to remember is the goodness of God. And yet David disciplines himself in prayer to remind himself of the character of God. He prays with an urgency in the midst of his deep suffering, and he says, how great is your goodness, he says in Psalm 31, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have worked for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. Perhaps no description of God better summarizes who he is than his goodness. Now, God is not divided. God is not made of a, of a sum total of various parts. We don't take his justice and his mercy and his goodness and his, and his justice and add those together and make God. God is all of those things. One writer said, one of the older writers said, it's like God's attributes, are his, it is light refracted through a prism. And we, in our human finite mind, see the red and the orange and the green and the blue but God is not divided in those component parts. You and I have parts. We have a body and we have a soul. We have hands and feet and fingers and hearts and lungs and all those kinds of things. God is not, a, not parts. God is. He is most pure spirit. And yet we observe things about God. He has revealed himself to us in such a way that we can say, well, we, I, I, in, logically speaking, mentally, I can distinguish his goodness from his wrath. But those are not in contradiction to one another. They, are, they all perfectly are God. But perhaps nothing better summarizes God's character than his goodness. His goodness. Charles Spurgeon said, remember the goodness of God in the frost of adversity. In the frost of adversity. David actually uses three different words, and he, and he reinforces those words together. He uses, look back at verse 16. Answer me, O Yahweh, for your loving kindness. If you have the ESV, it says your, uh, your steadfast love is good according to the abundance of your compassion or mercy. Turn to me. Loving kindness or steadfast love, goodness and mercy. There's no English word which that's, that really translates well. This word that's translated here is either loving kindness or steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word, hesed. And it's an all-encompassing word. It describes God's covenantal love. It describes his his. Obligation, his self obligation to deal with you and me who are in Christ according to mercy. God has obligated himself, not because of me, not because of you, not because of anything found in us, but because of the fact that he has expressed his love for us by way of covenant. Ian Dugan says the most precious use of the word has said in the Old Testament is as a description of what God does, having entered a covenant relationship with his people, God bound himself to act toward them in certain ways, and he is utterly faithful to his self-commitment. David prays, Lord, will you deal with me according to your own commitment, according to your steadfast love, your loyal love, your loving kindness. And saints, this is absolutely vital for us to understand this aspect of David's prayer. It was not his own righteousness. It wasn't his own merit. It wasn't his own sinlessness that he pleaded. He appealed to God because God had already obligated himself to respond in mercy. That is our prayer. Even in sin, even in the midst of sorrow, even in persecution, David could call upon the Lord in confidence and say, "'Answer me, O Yahweh, for your loving kindness is good.'" Answer me, O Yahweh, for your loyal love is good. We see that God's people may appeal to his chesed, his loving kindness, even, even when the grief is our own fault. In this case, with David, it's not, but even when it is, In the book of Lamentations, where Jeremiah prays on behalf of the people of God, it was their own generational sin and stubbornness. Decades had gone by where the prophets had pleaded to the people to repent, and they would not. It was their own fault. It was God's just chastisement that had come upon them. But even then, Jeremiah says, the loving kindness, the hesed of Yahweh indeed never ceases. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Saints, even when it's your own sin that has caused your grief. See, the temptation is because Satan will whisper in your ear, he will lie to you and say, God doesn't want you anymore. God is angry with you. God has already obligated himself to respond to you in mercy. When you call out to him, whether the suffering is because of somebody else has done something, something has happened out there or whether something has taken place in here that has breached your relationship with God, you may cry out to him and trust his goodness to redeem you. So David prayed. Our Lord Jesus prayed. And we ought to pray according to God's goodness. And and because we do find this difficult to do, it's not reflexive for us in the midst of suffering. That's all the more reason that we ought to use something like Psalm 69 as our prayer to help us when we are too weak to pray or to help us in our forgetfulness to pray the right things. But David's prayer reflects more than just a superficial understanding of God's goodness. David also prays that God is going to work something in him, even in the midst of the sorrow. So that's the second thing we see, the second petition for which David seeks God's help. We ought to pray for God's redemptive work in us, while we are suffering. Look down to verse 18. David says, Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me from my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I hoped for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And of course, the New Testament apostles attribute that statement to Christ himself. But we pray for God's redemptive work. And, and again, this takes practice, doesn't it? In the midst of sorrow, we, we are often going to pray, "Would get me out of here. And David prays that. That's an acceptable prayer, but we can't stop there. We pray, Lord, will you work in me? Will you accomplish your purposes of conforming me to my king? Will you make me more like Jesus even as the water rises up to my neck? Even as my feet slip in the miry clay? The writer of Hebrews, of course, says, no discipline is pleasant at the time, but it brings forth fruit. And those of you who have children, you know this. You've heard the expression, it hurts me to spank them more than it hurts them. Well, two things. One, if that's really true, you're not doing it right. But secondly, there is a reality where it hurts the heart. Of any good parent, it would hurt the heart to see a child cry, to see a child even even in a measured, temporary pain. It's hurtful. But we have to think of the bigger, long-term goal in mind. Bruce Ray, and I quoted from him recently, He's got a book called with, Withhold Not Correction. Listen to what he says. The discipline of the home is that force which can change the direction of the child or at least retard the breakneck speed with which he makes his steady descent. It is in the realization of this fact that Solomon can say to us, chasten thy son while there is hope and let not thy soul spare for his crying. This quotes the old King James. Oh, it hurts a parent to administer discipline, and the child cries when discipline is properly administered. But Solomon says to shut your ears against it. Do not let the crying of the child sway you from your God-given responsibility to discipline him. Realize that you, were do- you Realize what you were doing when you apply the rod. Do not let the crying of the child sway you from administering discipline because you were sparing him from a greater disaster by administering the rod that it may be that you shall deliver his soul from hell. Now, our Lord Jesus said, if you being evil as parents know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven? So if, if we even as evil parents can recognize that this momentary affliction that I bring about unto my child will later spare them from some greater sorrow, maybe an eternal one, how much more is your good and all-wise omnipotent Father able to bring you into and through suffering purposefully. To chasten you, to discipline you, to conform you, to shape you. Hebrews 5, verse 7. Listen to what the scripture says about our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that even the perfect, sinless, spotless Son of God learned obedience to his Father by suffering? That almost sounds blasphemous to say that, doesn't it? But we can say it because we're just reading what's in the the scriptures. The apostolic record gives us this. The infallible word of God tells us this. He, this is Christ in the days of his flesh, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Do You think, well, wait a minute, if he is sinless and spotless, wasn't he already perfect? When he was born and, he, and, and his mother laid him in a manger, wasn't he already perfect? Yes, with the, in the sense of having a sinless nature. There was, there was no stain or spot or wrinkle in him. But the scripture teaches us And theologians talk about how Christ was both active and passive in his obedience. Active in the sense that he obeyed every jot and tittle of the law. There was no sin found in him in thought, word, or deed. And yet also passively, he learned to submit himself to the full will of his father, including drinking the full cup of God's infinite wrath. He learned obedience through that suffering. By means of his conception, by the Holy Spirit, instead of a mere man, he had no innate sinful nature like you and I do. He wasn't inwardly tempted as you and I are. And yet he learned obedience by means of suffering. Now let's think this through. If it were necessary for the perfect, sinless, spotless Christ to be perfected by means of suffering, then what's your plan? For those of us who have a sinful nature, if sinless perfection required the obedience of suffering to come to God's full end for him, his full purpose, then what do you expect to happen to you? James chapter 1, verse 2, James says, "'Consider it all joy, my brothers, "'when you encounter various trials, "'knowing that the testing of your faith "'brings about perseverance.'" And let perseverance have its perfect works. That's the same word that the writer of Hebrews ascribes to Christ in terms of the perfection that he learned. Let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And that word perfect has the idea of, of full maturity. It's rooted in the Greek word telos, which means the purpose for which it was made to reach the desired end of our redemption, the desired purpose of our redemption, we must, we must submit ourselves to the suffering that the Lord in his perfect providence will give to us. Have you ever trained yourself in a particular discipline that requires frequent practice? Maybe you've, you've sought to learn a musical instrument, or you've sought to take up a firearm and learn to shoot a pistol or a rifle, or you've tried to, to learn some sport of some kind, I'm just amazed, and I'm not a golfer, but in the golf world, how many gadgets and gizmos there are to perfect a golf swing. And it requires practice. And if you are a coach, or a music teacher, or a counselor, or an arms instructor, one of the first things you're going to have to do with someone who comes in is you're going to have to help them unlearn what? Those bad habits. Because it's not reflexive. Picking up a golf club, it's not automatic to learn even how to hold it, much less how to swing it properly. You pick up a, a flute or a guitar or a saxophone or a piano, you're not going to pick up the piano, I guess, but you're not going to just immediately know how to play it. You have to be taught how to, how to, what's the right posture, what's the right shape of your mouth if it's, a music, if it's a, an instrument in, into which you blow. You have to be trained in those things. In a similar way, suffering is God's means of training us because it's not reflexive how we're supposed to respond. It's not innate to our human character to respond appropriately. We have to be trained, we have to be conditioned, we have to be disciplined like an athlete, like a soldier. And similarly, in the midst of suffering, our bad habits come out, don't they? When sorrow comes, and you can make your own list, right? But the bad habits come, the impatience, the the anger, the blame-shifting. The self-reliance, the pride, maybe it's despair, excessive sorrow, sinful sorrow comes out. And the list goes on and on, and of course you can make your own, but you know what comes out of you when you get squeezed. And sometimes you're embarrassed what comes out of you when you get squeezed. I am. Samurai, our perfect, good, and loving Heavenly Father knows how to refine His children. He knows how to draw out of us that dross that needs to be removed, all the impurities that need to be removed. He is conforming you. He's conforming me, not for this world. He's shaping us for another world. He's shaping us for a heavenly home. And so when he brings sorrow upon you, it's not because he's opposed to you. It's because he loves you infinitely and perfectly. Sometimes in your household, your children will not like the decisions you've made. They will think, oh, you've harmed me in this but you know better. Even as an imperfect father, even as an imperfect mother, you know better, and certainly your heavenly father knows. In Thomas Watson's old book called The Mischief of Sin, he says this, he says, to bless God in heaven when he is crowning us with glory is no wonder, but to bless God when he is correcting us, to bless him in a prison, to give thanks on a sick bed not only to kiss the rod, but to bless the hand that holds it. Here is the sun in its zenith. This speaks a very high degree of grace indeed and very much adorns our suffering. So, how do we pray in the midst of suffering? First, we remind ourselves of the character of God. We meditate upon his goodness, his loving kindness, his mercy. Secondly, secondly, we ask God to sanctify us. Oh Lord, will you work in me? Will you expose things in me that need to be gone? Will you, will you grant to me graces that I don't presently possess? Now let's look down at verse 22 to 28. Here is the, this section of imprecation in Psalm 69. And how do we think about this, this call for cursing in the context of everything else here? And it's helpful as we pray it this way. In the midst of sorrow and suffering, it is right for us to pray that God will deal justly with his enemies. There is no contradiction, there is no inconsistency between us praying that God would sanctify us in the midst of suffering, that he would draw us near to himself, and also that he would deal justly with his enemies. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes darken so they cannot see and make their loins quake continually pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them down to verse 28 even praying so far as may they be blotted out of the book of life and may they not be recorded with the righteous now once again i won't ask for a show of hands but who's confident they could pray such a prayer onto their own without sinning This is why the Word of God is such a helpful thing. The Psalms are such a good gift to God's people that we may pray the very words of Christ as our sure guide. And also to pray pray this in in balance. There are seven verses here of direct imprecation in the midst of 36 overall verses. As we pray, let's pray with a balanced perspective. Yes, we pray for God's judgment on His enemies after we have prayed that God does a work in us after we have prayed with with an admission that I, too, am a sinner in the need of God's grace, that there is sin that remains in me. Brothers and sisters, we have the the blessing of God upon us and upon our nation for so long that we've been spared violent persecution. But that is not the case in every place on the planet today, nor is it the case that that's been the the testimony of, of Christians throughout the ages. This is somewhat of a historical anomaly to kind of have the the kind of peace that we have had. And we are not assured in any way by the word of God that this sort of peace will continue. We're not given that assurance. In fact, we're told the opposite in the word of God, aren't we? So we pray to remind ourselves of the goodness of God, and we pray that God will use our present sorrows to conform us more and more to his image, it's also right for us to pray that God would deal justly with his enemies because the reality is in this life, in this world, much of our suffering will come from outside of us. It will be because wicked men have done wicked things and caused damage and harm to the people of God. And do we just have to sit and take it and say so we have no recourse? We just have to wait until Jesus returns? And that, No, we, we pray for God to deal justly With his enemies. As we've noted already in this this brief series on the imprecatory psalms, there's not an automatic conflict between praying for for the salvation of even the most wicked men and also praying for God to judge them if they remain unrepentant. God has given us this spirit-written prayer book in which we may pray rightly for our enemies. I ran across an example just yesterday uh, in, in Table Talk, the online version of Table Talk magazine. There's an article just written in the last few days from Pastor Valerie Zadorinsky, or Zadorizny, a Reformed Presbyterian pastor in Ukraine. Now think about, this is, this is sometimes theoretical and abstract for us. Not so much right now if you're a pastor in the Ukraine. How do you lead your people? How do you encourage them to pray? How do you, your own soul, how do you pray? Listen to what he says. He is a, a New Testament lecturer at the Evangelical Reform Seminary in Ukraine, in, in, in Kiev, but he's actually in, he's, he's currently in Odessa, and he says there it's relatively peaceful, it's relatively quiet, you hear some distant shelling, but here's how he's encouraging his people. He says, for every Christian, the following question is especially urgent now. How do we hate evil and also love our enemies who commit egregious crimes? good question, isn't it? How do we hate evil and love our enemies? He goes on, and we are no longer conceptualizing this question theoretically. When hatred boils up in us, we understand that we will need to forgive and to love. And two truths are especially valuable for us now, God's just retribution and the cross of our Lord. Our hearts are comforted in the truth of God's retribution. He will repay his unrepentant enemies in a way that we could never have done ourselves. Our hearts are humble before the cross of Calvary. We, as well as our enemies, deserve the wrath of God. But God has reconciled us to himself with the blood of his Son. We are under the power of the devil, just like everyone else. But God redeemed us with the blood of Christ. We pray for the repentance of our enemies. So that God will free them from the power of the devil's deception. We believe we'll come out as victors. We know that evil is defeated by the cross and the resurrection of our Lord. We know that whatever our enemies do to us, we will be resurrected because God has united us with Christ. Therefore, we celebrate the victory of our Lord. The main battle took place and the main enemy was already defeated by the cross. You see, he holds those two things, in I think, in a good, balanced tension. We pray for the destruction of our enemies if they will not repent. We pray for God's just retribution, and we actually we actually can take comfort in it. It's not wrong for you. It's not wrong for me to take comfort in the fact that God will eternally judge his enemies. God will be glorified both in the salvation of those he has redeemed and the eternal glorification of the church, but also in the destruction of of his enemies. He will be glorified equally in both. When our suffering is caused by the actions of others, and especially the willful and wicked actions of others, we will be tempted at that point to give full, full, full breath to our own wrath, right? I'll be tempted to just let them have it. But vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We are to wait upon him. But we may pray. That doesn't mean we can't pray, that God will judge his enemies and judge them perfectly. Something I couldn't do, something you can't do. We will be tempted to seek vengeance ourselves, to cultivate sinful anger in our hearts. Or we'll be tempted the other end to worldly grief and despair. This is just the way it's going to be. The enemies are going to win. And Psalm 69 can help you, can help me to pray as we ought to pray for God's justice upon his enemies. There's a fourth petition that David makes. We see this beginning in verse 29. He he prays based on God's good character. He prays for the work of sanctification in him. He prays for justice on God's enemies. And he also prays for a heart of praise to please God. He prays that God would grant him in the midst of suffering a heart of of gratitude, a heart of thanksgiving to God. Look at verse 29. I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. And this will please Yahweh better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The humble see it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive For Yahweh hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. David prays, Oh God, make me a worshiper. Give me a heart of thanksgiving. Help me to praise you. Back in verse 9, David says, in these words the apostles said, they recalled that this was written about Christ himself, zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Now, the church of Jesus Christ ought to to be known by this same characteristic, zeal for your house has consumed me. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardship, of persecution, of trials, even when we are are persecuted without cause, we ought to pray, O Lord, cause my heart to be zealous for your worship. Open my heart and my mouth to praise your name, O God. Now, if you were to ask David or any of the other faithful Old Testament saints, if you were to ask David, what does this zeal look like? Okay, you say zeal for the house of God can What does that look like? He would have answered that his zeal for God was expressed in the system of sacrifices and offerings that was given to him under the tabernacle system. Under the Old Covenant, the zeal of David and, and all the faithful saints was expressed in what the writer of Hebrews called copies and shadows of heavenly things. So to bring a, a bull or a goat... And bring those offerings to the Lord was an expression of that zeal. But ultimately, their whole lives were ordered around that system. You read through Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers, and you, you find that there's nothing, every finite detail, even what they what garments they wore, how they planted their fields how they lived their ordinary everyday lives everything revolved around the mosaic law that was burdensome no doubt peter said later on i mean neither we nor our fathers were able to bear this but that's how zeal would have been expressed under the old covenant now under the new covenant the entire sacrificial system has been fulfilled in christ No longer do we bring bulls and goats in. No longer do we have an an altar here on which we make offerings to the Lord. No longer do the people of God demonstrate their zeal for God through those particular things or through a particular place like Zion, like Jerusalem, like the temple. But rather we demonstrate our zeal for the worship and praise of God by gathering under his New Testament ordinances, under his New Covenant ordinances. As we gather corporately and we we read the word, we pray the word, we sing, we observe the Lord's Supper, we obey those ordinances that God has given to his people corporately, we are expressing a zeal for the house of God. When we preach and hear his word, we submit ourselves to our prophet, priest, and king. Under the new covenant, how do we express this zeal for our God? The outward workings of it are different, but the inward reality is the same. Our, it's a lot, it's whole lives ordered around the worship of God. It is our whole lives, our calendar, our schedule, our, 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 our family activities ordered around the corporate worship of the living God. And we know this because in Acts chapter 2, Luke observes this. As the Spirit of God has fallen upon this, this, the church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, as people are being added, it says they devoted themselves. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. And then Luke comments, and awe fell upon every soul. They ordered their entire lives around that community of faith. And the thing is, You cannot praise the way that David has praised. You cannot praise the one that you don't know. So I'd ask you this morning, do you know the living God? Have you come to know Yahweh through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his only son? Have you turned away from your sin and turned to Christ, believing his promises, believing that he is the one and the only one who can reconcile you to God? He is the only one who can take you out of the kingdom of darkness, graft you in to his heavenly kingdom. There's only one way. There's only one narrow gate into which one may enter the kingdom of God. Zeal for God's house ought to consume the Christian, but it cannot consume that one, the one who isn't yet a Christian. In verse 10, David says that when the world saw how he worshipped God, that he became a reproach. When the world observed, he said, I, I fasted put on sackcloth, sackcloth. And in the result, the world looked at that and said it became a reproach, a byword. He became a drunkard's song because of, of his devotion to the Lord. And do you know that those who are most close to you, those who are most able to see your own personal piety, your, your outward expression of your Christian faith, are sometimes the one most likely? to give to you the same kind of reproach? It's sad, isn't it? Those who are closest to you, sometimes they're family members who will see your devotion to Christ, who will see the fact that you you are inflexible in that way. You you are devoted to God's house and to God's people, and they will say, this is weird. At best, they might say, we don't understand that this is strange, and in, in the worst case, they may say, you are wrong to do that. You don't love us because you love God. Under the Old Covenant, your your Gentile neighbors would have known about your zeal for the worship of God by, by what you ate or didn't eat, by what you wore or didn't wear, by your refusal to work on the Sabbath, by your commitment to the tabernacle. And under the New Covenant, our neighbors don't see us in those same ways. It's not by what we eat or drink. We're not judged in those things or by our garments, but by our love for our neighbor and our love for our God. And in a public sense, a Christian zeal for the worship of God will perhaps be most strikingly in conflict with the world with respect to how do we consider the Lord's day? How do we consider the Lord's day? And increasingly, I mean, I grew up where we actually, there were still blue laws and stores that were closed and that kind of thing, and that's not the case anymore. In fact, increasingly, just ordinary common activities are done on the Lord's day. My friend, Pastor Chuck Rennie, preaching to this same psalm, he makes this observation. I think he's exactly right. He says this, I understand the temptation, but I've always found it troubling when we think that we are being evangelistic to our friends and to our family by agreeing to miss church for a birthday or some function or other, some unnecessary work, much less sports. Perhaps the thinking is we don't want to offend them, or maybe it is we don't want to seem like those fundamentalists, inflexible, and yet, Jesus expects us to be inflexible in our commitment to him, and he tells us to expect that the world will take offense without a cause. You want them to know you love them, surely, that you care for them, but you want them to know you love the Lord more. Perhaps in no other place is this conflict going to show up when you have to tell a family member even, we're going to be with the Lord and his people on Sunday, not at this other activity. And, and I, I remember, it's almost a quarter of a century ago now, Gene and I found ourselves as new believers, young kids, and all those kinds of things that, that were the, the birthday parties and the family reunions and all those kinds of things, and we had to say, we won't be there. And it was hard. It was grievous because there was a sense of, of they were personally offended, and, and, and we had to stand our ground and say, we would love to come. We want to be with our family. We want to participate in those things. There are six other days that we will, we will move everything we can possibly move around to be there. But not on the Lord's Day. That belongs to him. It's not mine to negotiate with. It's his. We won't be there. And even worse, we were sometimes pressured to schedule our own birthday parties on a Sunday because that was more convenient for everyone else. And we had to say, we're not doing that. And in time... Uh, the Lord was gracious to us, and as he grew our love for him and his people, and in time, even our families began to accept those things. But it had to be some, some training, as it were, both for our own souls and for those around us. And, and to some of you, Psalm 69 should come, this, this statement in particular, this, this, this prayer that David makes, to make me zealous, to make me thankful, to make me worship you. Psalm 69, I hope, is an encouragement to you to persevere, to continue to grow in your commitment to the worship of God and to your commitment to the Lord's Day. Some of you may need the grace of repentance in this area because you have forsaken the Lord's Day regularly. Some have established a pattern of prioritizing all kinds of other things instead of the gathered worship of God. David says, I will praise the name of God with song, and magnify him with thanksgiving. And he says, look back at verse 20, or verse 31, this will please Yahweh better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. Even under the old covenant system, it was, it was still about, where's your heart? To just go through the motions. David just to bring the bull and the goat. I mean, that, that's, that checks the box. That satisfies the letter of the law. But Jesus told the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He you wants your heart. And David prays, Lord, help me to give my heart to you. Help me to, to express that. Help me to live in such a way that I'm willing to bear the shame and reproach, to even be a drunkard's song, because I've dared to worship God publicly. And even those near to me without cause have said, this is stupid. Why are you doing this? There's a last petition in the, very, in the last two verses that David makes. David prays in a confidence that Christ will indeed preserve his church. Again, David prays, Christ prays, and now we as the church can pray, for God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah. Zion was a, was a literal historical city. It was Jerusalem, and it's also a type of, We see in the the New Testament, you turn to the book of Revelation and say, Zion is that city of God. It is the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. It is the church. He says, God will save Zion. He will save his church, and he will build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. David can pray in confidence, and we even greater confidence because we have seen the Messiah. We know Jesus of Nazareth is the one who has come and said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can pray in faith that God will redeem, indeed redeem His church, preserve His church and ultimately glorify His church. And we pray that as long as the Lord tarries, He will preserve His church even in generations to come. Look what He says. The seed of His slaves will inherit it. Now, we're not thinking in terms of, of physical seed at this point. This is the seed of Christ. This is the spiritual offspring of Abraham. This is those who have embraced by faith and repentance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have we have a, a reasonable expectation as parents that as we're faithful to teach and instruct our little ones, as they sit under the gospel in, in, in your homes and in this place, that in due time God will call them. And the seed of his slaves, the seed of his ser- servants, will inherit the same precious promises. Not because, and the reason we, you know this, we don't practice, we don't baptize our babies in, in, in a symbol of them already being in the covenant. We believe it's, it is a spiritual covenant. It is by faith and repentance that one is grafted into the new covenant. But we pray for the salvation of our children. We pray for the salvation of our neighbors. We pray for the Lord to raise up workers for the harvest in the next generation, believing that God is going to preserve his church. If he tarries, this isn't the end of the line for the church. It's easy. It's easy to be tempted. When we look at the headlines, we look at all that's going on in the world and think, man, is this it? Is this the last age where the church will be prosperous? Have you thought that? Been tempted to think that. Look at, David's: the seed of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. The church isn't going away, saints, because Christ isn't going away. His promises aren't going away. In Second Timothy two, in verse two, Paul tells Timothy: says What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, teach to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's four generations in that one verse. The seed is going to inherit the promises of God. The church will endure. He's going to use his means to accomplish that. So in the midst of of overwhelming sorrow and suffering, Psalm 69 stands as a wonderful help to us in our praying, doesn't it? It it helps us to step back, as it were, and, and think about, in light of everything that's going on around us, we can so become so focused on the circumstances, so focused on that water that's coming up to here, so focused on the fact that I, my feet just feel like I can't get purchased. I just keep slipping and sliding. That's the image that David starts with. He, he begins the psalm with, I have sunk in deep clay, there's no foothold, I've come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. And he ends with, God will save Zion. And the cities of Judah will be preserved. In fact, it won't just be empty shells of cities. You can go in various parts of the world today. And there are ancient ruins where people used to dwell. The building's still there. But no one, there, are, there are churches and cathedrals around the world. Magnificent structures and no one's there. But that doesn't mean that God has abandoned his church. As we pray, we pray Psalm 69 helps us to remind us of the goodness and God's covenant love to his people. His chesed, his covenant faithfulness, his self-obligation to respond to us in mercy. We pray, according to Psalm 69, that God will sanctify us, that he will use the sorrows, the suffering, the troubles, the difficulties to conform us more to the image of his own son that he would use those very means to sanctify us in the truth. We pray that God will deal justly with his enemies. As as We we pray one way or the other that God would deal justly, either because he's poured out his infinite wrath on their behalf in Christ and he calls them to faith and repentance. Or if they remain unrepentant, they will not escape the judgment of God. And we have a right to be encouraged by that. We pray that for, for the hearts, we pray that God would give us hearts of gratitude, hearts that praise him even in the midst of suffering. That God would give us hearts that, that reflexively we might think like the, like the dog that gets hit by the car and he wants to run under the porch and isolate. And that maybe I live, maybe I die, and you won't see me again until I'm well. And Sometimes our hearts are that way. When we suffer, we want to isolate. Psalm 69 helps us push back against that natural impulse. No, that's the very time. We need to gather with God's people and lift up your voices in praise to Him. And we pray in confidence that Christ is going to establish and preserve His church. The very gates of Hades will not prevail. No foe, no enemy will triumph. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we give you thanks for the mercy that you've shown to us in Christ. We thank you for your covenant love, for your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your loving kindness toward us. It is wholly undeserved by us. It is purely and only based on the merit of Christ himself. But we give you thanks that from before the foundations of the world, you loved a people for yourself. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray that you would teach us how to use this gift, this book of the Psalter that you've given to us as a guide to our prayers, to encourage our hearts to conform us more and more to the image of Christ, to promote our fellowship with one another, to encourage us even as the world gnashes its fangs, and sets its schemes against us, knowing that the nations have raged against you and against your anointed, and they hate us because they first hated him. Or draw us near to him, protect us, strengthen us. For Christ's sake, for the glory of our triune God, we ask this. Amen.